This is the Bible Line, a live radio call-in program with Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. And for the next hour, he's available to answer your questions, providing biblical insight and wisdom for everyday Christian living. Our phone lines are open, and if you have a question, you may call 525-1859 locally or outside the immediate area, call toll-free 877-924-7980. Now let's join Dr. Carl Brogy. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. We welcome you this hour to the Bible line. If you've tuned in for the first time to 88.7 FM, this is all Christian radio. We broadcast here locally from Beaufort, South Carolina, and through the internet around the world at wagp.net. And on this hour on Tuesdays, we entertain questions that people have. Maybe it's a passage of scripture they're struggling with, or maybe they're trying to understand uh, how to apply uh, God's will to their life, and they're not sure what the Lord might say in a particular area. So people call in with their questions. Locally, the number, the 843 South Carolina Exchange is 525-1859, 843-525-1859. When you call, you can simply dictate your question, or you can go on the air live, and of course, we always give preference to live callers. A lot of people contact us um, at um, TBL. Uh, that stands for the Bible line, TBL. Um, and um, if you email us, we're happy to take your uh, email question. So tblwagp.net. Um, so they come in from all over the place, all kinds of questions. And we got a ton of them that have come in in the last several days. So let's go ahead and we'll get started, Rick. All right. Very good, uh, Pastor. Bob from Bluffton says, I heard someone on the NRB Network G3 program say that Jesus used scriptures written in the Greek. That doesn't sound right. I've always heard the Old Testament scriptures in Jesus's day were in Hebrew. The New Testament used after Jesus was mostly Greek. Please straighten me out. Well, it's a good question, and we cannot absolutely definitively say on every issue, this is what happened. We can only speak to what Jesus said, but we can also address other examples in Scripture. Sometimes there are some clear inferences that we can uh, deduce uh, how he approached the Scriptures, what translation he read in, etc. Now, certainly the Apostle Paul, we know that he knew Aramaic, he knew Greek, and he knew Hebrew. So uh, we're not surprised that Jesus, the Lord of glory, might also know three languages. You know, we used to joke around, what's someone who speaks three languages called? And we'd say trilingual. What's someone who's called, who speaks two languages called? And we'd say bilingual. What's someone who speaks only one language called? And we'd say American. Because uh, as Americans, we typically only speak one language. Interestingly, if you go to Israel today, virtually all the Arabs— know both Hebrew and uh, Arabic. Uh, That's not unusual uh, throughout Jerusalem especially. You might get out into the sticks somewhere and it's not quite as prevalent, but most people know two languages and a large number of them, in addition, know English, uh, the kind of the international languages. So knowing three languages is not unusual. What did Jesus read? What, What did he know? Well, we do know when he was 12 years of age, he was in the temple and he was dialoguing with the religious leaders in the temple. 
they read the Hebrew scriptures. That was the lingua franca. That was the language of worship. And so it is true that most people lost their ability to read Hebrew due to the um, times when they were carried away, first by the Assyrians, later by the Babylonians. And with time, most Jewish people spoke Greek or they spoke Aramaic. Uh, Aramaic was certainly the tongue that Jesus would have been raised up with in, uh, in Nazareth. But I, I have no doubt that he knew Hebrew as well, just because that was the language that his father originally inspired the scriptures in. And for him to be able to dialogue with the religious leaders who would have only used Hebrew, then by inference, I think you can say he knew the Hebrew scriptures as well. Um, in a synagogue, even in a place like Nazareth, uh, they didn't read the scriptures in Aramaic. What did they read them in? They read them in Hebrew. And then typically a professional translator who knew Aramaic well would and Hebrew would then uh, interpret their meaning. Uh, the word interpret or translate in Aramaic is the word targum. And so sometimes you'll read in a commentary about an Ar- Aramaic targum. Uh, That is uh, someone who knows Aramaic who's interpreting what they think the Hebrew means. Now, obviously, their interpretation is only as accurate as they take it from the original language into their own tongue. And so there are certainly Aramaic targums, as they're called, that were inaccurate, that were not faithful to what God says. Uh, For instance, we speak in Malachi, I, the God of Israel, hate divorce. In uh, Aramaic Targum said, if uh, you hate her, divorce her. Now, that's very different from the way the Masoretic text reads. Either God of Israel hates divorce versus an interpretation in Aramaic, a Targum, where if you hate her, divorce her, two different worlds. So Targums were only as accurate as the translation uh, the translator. But again, um, Josephus and all the ancient historians of the day unanimously affirm, let everything be confirmed by the mouth of two or three witnesses, that the common practice was always, even in Aramaic-speaking places, to read God's holy word in the language he gave it in, Hebrew. And so God has always had his men to be able to uh, interface and interact. Now, did Jesus read Greek? Well, there's actually only one place in the New Testament where we see the Lord Jesus picking up a copy of Scripture and reading it out loud. And, of course, it's in Nazareth. And interestingly, when he's in Nazareth, he is handed the scroll, he reads it, and he's reading at least what's recorded from the Septuagint. So he's reading from the Greek translation. So is that because he was reading Greek? I don't think so. I think what was probably happening was because Luke is writing to a Gentile audience, And because even most Jews in the day read the Septuagint, you will see like in the New American Standard when there's a quotation from the Septuagint out in the margin, it will say LXX, Roman numeral LXX, L being 50, XX 10 and 10, so 70. So the the story behind it is that the Septuagint was translated by 70 men. Um, in some say in 70 days um, from the Hebrew into Greek. But certainly 70 men uh, was certainly, I think, a pretty representative tradition. So most people read from the Septuagint. So if you're writing the New Testament, your goal is to communicate. 
And since they read the Septuagint, they would quote from the Septuagint. Now, the Septuagint, again, is a translation. But whenever the Septuagint makes it into the New Testament, then God the Holy Spirit puts his stamp of authority, at least on that particular verse, as being an absolute um, representation of what he had originally inspired. So, you know, again, uh, I don't think it would be absurd to say that Jesus uh, spoke Greek, knew Greek, because, of course, he goes to areas where Greek is a predominant language during his three-year public ministry. Uh, He's in the Decapolis. Paulus means city, Decaten, so he's in the region of 10 cities, and there's a lot of Greek-speaking people there, and I think he was able to communicate with them. He was not ignorant. He was incredibly bright. He was God the Son. And if Paul could know three languages, and most people in Israel today know three languages, I have no doubt the Lord knew three languages. But I, I, I think it's a real stretch to assume that he studied the scriptures in Greek. I, I think he studied them in Hebrew based on what we read with his first encounter with the religious leaders when he's 12 and um, and other things. So I hope that helps get you some, give you some food for thought. All right, very good. Michaela from Beaufort writes, is the Antichrist Satan or someone controlled by Satan? Well, it's, it's a good question. He's certainly not Satan because, uh, and you might want to, Michaela, um, download the Search the Scriptures app, and you can go to the app store, type in Search the Scriptures. There's an organization called searchthescriptures.com. That's not us. It's searchthescriptures.org. We're an organization, a nonprofit, 501c3. And on it, you'll find thousands of messages. Included in it is the book of Revelation. And so, like when you read Revelation chapter 13, there is a distinction between the dragon, who's identified as Satan, a beast coming up out of the sea, and then even a second beast. I saw another beast in verse 11 coming up out of the earth. Um, and so you s- clearly see three individuals who are separated from one another. And in one sense, I often refer to it as an unholy trinity. Uh, Satan takes the place of God the Father. Uh, the Antichrist takes the place of God the Son. And the uh, false prophet, also called a beast out of the earth, uh, he takes the place of God the Holy Spirit. He's kind of like a John the Baptist who points people to the Antichrist. Now, it is true that uh, Judas was literally, actually, inhabited by Satan. He was not just demon-possessed. He was uh, possessed of the devil himself, uh, which is, I suppose, the worst form of uh, demonic possession that one could know. And he is called the son of perdition. There's only one other person in Scripture who's called the son of perdition, and it's in Second Thessalonians 2, and it's the Antichrist himself. But the Antichrist is a real human individual. Now, Satan is not omniscient. Uh, he doesn't know at what point God is going to rapture the church because the rapture has always been imminent. As you read the New Testament, it could take place at any moment. Someone came up to me at Meet the Pastor on Sunday night, and they said, well, do you believe in the rapture? And I said, well, yes, and you do too. What do you mean? I said, every Christian believes in the rapture. The word rapture comes from the Latin Bible, which was the principal translation used for a thousand years. So we have a lot of Latin terms that come into the Christian faith because that was the predominant translation 
virtually the only translation that people could hear, and so you were uh, dependent on the scholar to be able to read it to you because Latin eventually became a dead language. And so one of the great movements of the Protestant Reformation was to encourage Bible translation. It had started before the Reformation, but it really took off in a great way during the time of the Reformation so that the average person could read the Scriptures because they were defying the church at Rome that said, no, you shouldn't read the Scriptures. You can't really read the Scriptures. Only we, uh, the magisterium, can read and interpret the Scriptures for you, so there's no need for you to read them. Well, the Reformation changed that, and they said, no, uh, God's Word encourages us to read the Scriptures. There's an assumption there that we can understand what he has said. Not that it's always easy, not that you don't grow in your knowledge of Scripture, you do, but there's a sense in which we can know and understand God's Word. So I say all this to say that there is an unholy trinity that is coming, and that, yes, as I told this woman on Sunday night, every person believes in the rapture, because the Latin translation says, we shall all be caught up, harpazo, in Greek, raptore, in Latin, so it comes into English as rapture. So we all believe that we're going to be caught up out of the grave, translated in a second. Uh, I don't care what you call it, the catching up, the harpazo, the rapture. So it's kind of an argument of ignorance to say, well, this you know, select fanatical group believes in the rapture when every Christian, if they just think about it, believe in it. Now, there's debate over the time of the rapture, when it will take place. Does it take place before the tribulation, in the middle, at the end, and so on? And, of course, the church that she was coming from was amillennial, and so she just saw in her mind and in the teaching she'd been exposed to just one general resurrection where everybody's brought up at the same time, believers and unbelievers. We go into the eternal state, and that's the end. That's amillennialism, and it's a denial of hundreds of prophecies in the Old Testament that speak of the fact that there is a literal coming kingdom. Uh, All kinds of prophecies. In the rapture, we meet the Lord in the air. At the second coming, he plants his feet on the Mount of Olives. He splits it in two. And uh, one of the miracles that takes place on that day, there's two that are highlighted, is there's a river that flows from the Temple Mount all the way down to the Dead Sea where people can fish in the Dead Sea. Is that going to happen or not? Is that just you know, uh, a nice thought, or did God say what he meant and meant what he said? Well, all the prophecies for the first coming were literally fulfilled. We shouldn't think any differently. Here's my point in all of this. The rapture is an imminent event. It could take place today. It could take place if God so chose before this broadcast ends. The second coming of Christ is a prophetically driven event. All kinds of prophecy has to happen. The amazing thing is that we are living, quote-unquote, in biblical times and that we are seeing God fulfill prophecy in this age uh, for the second coming, which should remind you the rapture is all that much closer. And the super sign for the second coming, of course, concerns the people of Israel. And our millennialism denies that. It's called replacement theology, or theologues would use the term supersessionism that the uh, church has uh, succeeded Israel, taken the place of Israel, and God has no longer a plan for the Jews. And that's what, sadly, some of the Reformers taught, um, because they're coming out of Roman Catholicism, and really Roman Catholicism spearheaded replacement theology. 
So because the rapture is imminent, Satan is not all-knowing. So in one sense, he has had to have a, a man, at least in mind, a human, because the Antichrist is a real human, on the scene in any generation, because he doesn't know when the rapture is going to take place. But this person who comes on the scene will come, the Scripture teaches, with miraculous powers. Where is he going to get his powers from? Well, your power either comes to do a miracle from God or it comes from the evil one, from Satan. And these powers will come from Satan himself. Um, so he, he tells us, let no one in any way deceive you. For it, this day of the Lord that begins with the rapture and goes all the way through the millennial reign of the Messiah, it can't come until certain things are in place. You can't think that you are in the day of the Lord, which begins with the great tribulation period, um, you couldn't be in it if you haven't witnessed the apostasy. So the apostasy takes place at the beginning of the day of the Lord. This one world leader comes on the scene and people fall away um, from historical Christianity and they embrace it initially this multiplicity of religions. But the Antichrist won't be satisfied with that. He's not going to say, well, if you want to be a Hindu, you can worship the Hindu God or this God or that God. No, he's going to then get very pointed and say, you have to worship me or there's no true worship at all. And unless you worship me by taking my mark, you won't be able to buy or sell anything. Um, I think we are seeing a precursor for that in this whole um, issue with this pandemic where there's world control and, you know, uh, you can't go into a restaurant. You might not be able to, you can't fly internationally right now without being vaccinated. Uh, and then we're now debating what fully vaccinated means. And in in some cities like New York, you know, they're really clamping down in terms of freedoms that you have. This is all a precursor to the system of control that the Antichrist is going to bring. So um, this man who comes on the scene will do all kinds of miracles. Uh, the scripture says, then that lawless one, and he's also called the son of perdition in this chapter, the same title given to Ju Judas, that lawless one will be revealed whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth. Well, what will the lawless one look like who's going to be slain at the second coming and cast into the lake of fires, Revelation tells us? Well, he's the one whose coming is in accord with the activity of Satan, with all power and signs and false wonders, and with all the deception of wickedness for those who perish. So he's going to be empowered by the evil one. Now, is he going to be literally indwelt by the evil one? We don't know. But if Christ is God incarnate, maybe this is the closest picture to Satan incarnate. Uh, but he will certainly come with the power in false lying wonders that only Satan can empower him to do. So we know that much. I would encourage you to listen to my series on Revelation, but you, if, and there's, if you add up the hours, there's over, I think, 75 hours or thereabout. I think I counted up 72, and I was being generous because I said, well, you know, the average sermon is about an hour and 10 minutes, and da, da 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 and sometimes I went an hour and 20 minutes. And so there's at least 72 hours of, of teaching on the book of Revelation, and listen to chapter 13. So get the Search the Scriptures app, and listen to Revelation 13, and you will learn. You'll get a theological, uh, systematic um, teaching on the Antichrist and all that he brings. Very good. 843-525-1859. If you have a question for Pastor Carl Brogy, 
And Gabby from all the way down under in Australia writes, Hi, Dr. Brogy. Since being saved, I've always believed in an inerrant view of Scripture. However, I've been trying to do more study on the Bible. Should I be asked to give an account for what I believe? I downloaded a document from a seminary which said that they believed the Bible was the Word of God. However, the resource I downloaded then stated that there are irregularities in the Bible, which means we should just focus on the big picture and overall meaning. The irregularities they put forward are the same event can be attributed to Satan or to God in 2 Samuel 24, 1 and 1 Chronicles 21, 1, to Jesus in a vision to, or to Ananias in Acts 22, 14 and 15 and Acts 26, 16 and 18, and Paul's companions stood and heard, but they also fell down and did not hear, Acts 9, 7 and Acts 22, 7 and 9. I was just wondering if you could help me, as I don't think God would put inconsistencies in his word to his people. Thank you. Well, Gabby, it's a, it's a great set of questions, and since they're related, I will, I'll try to answer them. Usually I tell people I'll only take one question at a time because I want to give as many people uh, the opportunity, but since the church in Australia is struggling so much, I'm going to do my best to answer your questions this morning. By the way, Gabby, if you would uh, sometimes send me a note and give me uh, a feel for what's going on with the body of Christ in Australia. I know in some sections there's tremendous lockdown, and I wonder if you're experiencing that. I would just be uh, curious so we can better pray for the body of Christ there. You're obviously right. There are no inconsistencies in the Bible. And Jesus believed in verbal plenary inspiration. Verba meaning word, plenary meaning full, again, Latin terms, which many of them come because of our use of the Latin Bible around the world for a thousand years, inspiration. So we believe every single word is inspired. Uh, That's what the Lord Jesus taught. He made an argument for his deity on the tense of a verb when uh, the Sadducees denied the doctrine of the bodily resurrection he said, um, God didn't say I was, but God said, in essence, I am. I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, meaning Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who had been dead for a few thousand years, were still, spiritually speaking, very much alive, because unlike the Sadducees, who, who taught that life ended in the grave, um, God, even in the Pentateuch, had a different view. And of course, I think it's interesting because Jesus could have gone to other passages that taught the bodily resurrection and life thereafter. But since the Sadducees only believed in the first five books of the Bible as being inspired, he went right to the text that they did embrace and proved um, what God said about the coming resurrection. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said this in Matthew 5, do not think that I came to abolish the law of the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter, and the smallest letter, it it says yod, um, or stroke, or tittle, um, shall pass away from the law. So a yod, or a letter, it's the smallest Hebrew letter in the Hebrew alphabet. It looks um, like our apostrophe. That's how small a letter it is. And a stroke, or a tittle, is a little mark. In English, it would be the difference, say, between the printed letter O, capital O, and the printed letter capital Q. There's just a little slash mark. Well, there's little slash marks that say 
differentiate the letter Resh and the letter Daleth in Hebrew. And so Jesus is saying that's how inspired the scriptures are. So uh, there have certainly been times in the history of the church where there have been uh, translation issues. That's not what we're speaking about. These liberals at this seminary that you are reading stuff from, they start with the premise that the original autographs have errors in them. That's what they're saying. They're saying the original autographs have errors in them. And they say that in that they, they want to sound orthodox, so they say the Bible's inspired, uh, but since it's written by fallible, sinful men, some of their foibles bled onto the pages of Scripture. So we have a new movement in the country saying that Paul was a homophobic person. No, he wasn't homophobic. He was just recounting what God had already revealed through Moses. I guess Moses is homophobic. Um, he was just saying what God said about, say, the sin of homosexuality. Or Paul, you know, he was a, a woman hater, so he didn't want women to be pastors. No. Paul was just acknowledging that men and women are equal, that while they are equal, they have different roles. So they are starting with the premise that there are mistakes and errors in the Bible. That's what every agent of the evil one has always done since the Garden of Eden. Did God really say? We were beginning to examine this reality last Sunday when I introduced the book of Jonah, and I just gave the background information, and God willing, when we start next month, we'll begin an in-depth study of every single verse. Um, but they question the accuracy in transmission of the Bible. So they try to find mistakes. So I'm going to answer your questions, but let me first say I want to direct you to a resource, and it's a course I teach, Gabby, on bibliology. I know you're in Australia, but we offer here at Community Bible Church, not just for our own people, but actually most of the people who've taken the courses are not from Community Bible Church. Uh, they are people who live in other states who listen to search the scriptures. So we offer what's called the Institute of Biblical Studies, and it's a 36-hour course of study, and I teach it on a master's level, and one of the courses is called Bibliology. Um, bibliology is the study of the Bible, and section four of Bibliology deals with so-called alleged contradictions in the Bible. So I go through dozens and dozens of, hey, we got you here, look at this mistake, and we look at them contextually and otherwise. So, like Second Samuel 24, verse 1, uh, compared to First Chronicles 21, 1, um, they highlighted there's a problem here, therefore a contradiction. Well, why are they doing that? Because, again, now they are a judge of the Bible. If, uh, if the Bible is not fully inspired, if God didn't inspire every single word, even the letters, then now you become a judge of the Bible. And you have to, if it's only inspired in spots, then you have to be inspired to spot the spots. Oh, I like this verse over here where it says God is love, but I don't like this verse over here where it describes God as a consuming fire, as a God of wrath, as a God of justice. So you begin to pick and choose. Now, again, the anger of the Lord burned against Israel, and it incited David against them to say, go number Israel and Judah. Where the chronicler, he writes this, then Satan stood up against Israel and moved David to number Israel. So the question becomes, did God move David to number Israel, or did Satan move David to number 
Israel. There's no contradiction because both statements are true. God simply allowed Satan to prompt David to test David in the process, just like if you remember on one occasion, you can read Job 1 and 2, Satan comes into the presence of God with some of the fallen angels and says, you know, the only reason Job really loves you is because you've blessed him. You know, you've bought his love. Just take away some of those blessings and I'll show you that he doesn't really love you. So God allows Satan to do certain things short of taking Job's life. Uh, Martin Luther was entirely accurate when he said the devil is God's devil. The devil is God's devil, meaning God is so sovereign over every aspect of creation, even over Satan himself. So what we see in First Second Samuel 24 and then First Chronicles 21 is very similar to God permitting Satan to trouble Job or God allowing an evil spirit to torment Saul. You remember that from First Samuel 16. So God simply allows Satan to prompt David uh, to test David in the process. And so, um, and let me just say parenthetically here, you know, what happened, and, and by the way, mo- most people, the, the question this guy raised is a small one. Again, there's no contradictions in the Bible, but the scripture complements what it says in one book with another. There are other issues in this chapter, like there's a census that's taken and the numbers are, are different. Um, but there's an explanation, and I cover that again in my course on bibliology. Uh, even the price of the threshing floor appears different. But again, when you look at it contextually, oh, there, there's no contradiction at all. It perfectly lines up. So what was David's desire to even count the people? Was having a national census wrong? No, there's nothing wrong with taking a national census because it was often done in Scripture. Just read the book of of numbers. It's a book of numbering. But this particular census was very different. The fact that David only had the military men counted as Second Samuel 24, the next verse indicates in a few verses later here in verse 9. So what was he doing? He was determining the strength that he had in terms of uh, the military. And that's what displeased the Lord. He was going to put his confidence in his resources, how big his army was, not in the Lord. And God, you know, that that displeased the Lord. Even, even Joab questioned, you know, the wisdom of what David was doing on that particular instance. And so in Psalm 20, which is a psalm of David, David will write, some boast in chariots and some in horses, but we will boast in the name of our Lord, the Lord our God. And on that day, David was boasting in horses and in troops rather than in the strength and the victory that only God could supply. So no contradiction there. Uh, again, there's some other issues in that chapter. I cover them in depth, section four. If you And I will say that the course in bibliology is not for the faint-hearted. Uh, there's note-taking outlines, which you can download on the Internet, and all the messages that go with it. Um, but there's over 500 pages of note-taking outlines just for that particular course. Now, the Acts 9, and again, I've taught the book of Acts, and so sometimes if you have a question, say, well, has Pastor Carl Say taught Acts? And, uh, oh, he's taught the book of Acts. Maybe he addresses it. So in Acts 9, let me read that. It says, um, this is a description Luke is writing 
of how this man, Saul of Tarsus, is converted and ultimately becomes the Apostle Paul. The men who traveled with him, Paul is on his way to Damascus to get letters to further persecute the church. Stephen's already dead. And so the men who traveled with him, uh, these unbelieving Jews, they stood speechless, hearing the voice, or if you have the NASB, as I'm reading from, in the margin it says, uh, hearing the sound, um, but seeing no one. Now, please note, it does not say that they did not see anything, but they saw no one. And it continues, and I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I answered, who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus the Nazarene whom you are persecuting. Um, So again, very, 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 very clear. So on the one hand, in Acts 9, 7, um, there's some men with him. They hear the voice, or you could say they hear the sound, but they see no one. But then in Acts 22, 7 that I just read, where Paul is telling his testimony, uh, he said, I'm traveling along, I fell to the ground, I hear a voice, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who are you, Lord? I'm Jesus the Nazarene. And those who were with me saw the light, to be sure, but did not understand, or many translations say, did not hear the voice of the one who is speaking to me. Uh, If you have, again, the NASB, again, they're letting Scripture interpret Scripture, and they, the word phone is the word for hear, and some try to build a case, that in one case it's a genitive, the other case it's an accusative, but pretty difficult to build it off of that because it's not consistently distinguished. But in one case, they, they hear a sound, but on the other case, they hear, but they don't really hear with understanding. And so I think that's what's going on. They hear the sound, but they don't hear with understanding. They see a light, but they don't see Jesus. So, uh, again, you let Scripture interpret Scripture. Acts 9-7 indicates that a voice or at least a sound was heard. So if you let Scripture interpret Scripture, we can say they heard Christ's voice, but since they didn't understand, uh, so it could be said that they just heard the sound. And so you can translate that word phone either... um, uh, uh, the, the word that follows uh, hearing, uh, either voice or sound. So Acts 9, 7, and this is part of your question, it doesn't include that they saw a light. Well, the fact that it doesn't include that they saw a light in Acts 22, 9 does say they include the light, doesn't mean that there was no light. That would be an overinterpretation to say that um, because it's noted in one passage and not the other, it doesn't make it true. You know, when Christ is arrested in Gethsemane, the Bible teaches a disciple cut off the ear of a slave. In another gospel, it says the disciple who cut off the ear was named Peter. And still in another of the synoptics, it tells us the one who cut off the ear, that the slave who had his ear cut off, his name was Malchus, and that Jesus immediately healed the ear, which Luke as a physician would no doubt want to highlight. So just because something is left out doesn't mean that it's not true. So Acts 9 tells us they did not see anyone, but it did not, does not say they did not see anything because based on Acts 22, they saw a light. So they hear a sound, they see a light, they don't see Jesus. Paul hears a sound. He knows what the sound means. Who are you, Lord? I'm Jesus and Nazarene whom you're persecuting. 
It's a bright light. Remember, the event takes place, Acts 9 highlights, in the middle of the day at high noon when the sun's highest and brightest in the sky. And in that section of the world, if you've been to Israel in that parallel, the sun is like super, super bright. Depending where you are on the planet depends on the brightness and the intensity of the sun. Even here in South Carolina, if you light a candle at noon on a bright, sunny day, it's not going to make any difference. But this light from heaven was so bright, it overshadowed the sun, so to speak. It was brighter than the sun. So no contradiction at all. Um, And then the second part of your question concerning the encounter that Paul had with Christ comes from Acts 22 and Acts 26. In Acts 22, and he said, Ananias is speaking, the God of our fathers has appointed you to know his will and to see the righteous one and to hear an utterance from his mouth, for you will be a witness for him to all the people of what you have seen and heard. And in Acts 26, let me just turn over a couple pages. Paul is uh, giving his testimony before King Agrippa. And in Acts 26, as he recounts his testimony, um, again, he falls on the ground. Who are you, Lord? He said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But get up and stand on your feet. For this purpose I have appeared to you to appoint you a minister and a witness, not only to the things which you have seen, but also to the things which I will appear to you, rescuing you from the Jewish people and from the Gentiles uh, to whom I am sending you to open their eyes so that they may turn from the darkness to light, from the dominion of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who are sanctified or saved, not by works, but by faith in me. So there's no contradiction there. Um, And I think it's interesting that what we see in Acts 22 when the Lord appears to Ananias, Paul clearly has the vision. And he will recount the experience in Galatians that he didn't receive the gospel from men. He received it by direct revelation from the Lord himself. So Ananias didn't give Paul the plan of salvation. But I think it's interesting that when God appears, when Christ appears to Ananias, he recounts what has already taken place in Saul of Tarsus's life, that God sold this, selected this man, um, the God of our fathers has appointed you to know his will and to see the righteous one. He's recounting what the Lord Jesus said to him. So think about that. So here's Ananias. He comes to Paul and he says, hey, listen, let me tell you what Jesus said. And Paul, who's been blinded for three days, This message that Christ gave him had been reverberating in his soul, and now this man whom he had never met before, who, of course, is initially afraid to approach him, he says, Lord, you know about this guy. He's the one who persecutes all the saints. He's killing people, and you want me to go talk to him? Yep, he's my man. And he recounts what Jesus had already told him three days before. What would that do for Paul? Man, it would tell him that this man named Ananias was a man from God because he is recounting the exact same thing that the Lord told me on the Damascus Road. So there are no contradictions in the Bible. Gabby, I would stop listening to that seminary because if a seminary, and, and here's the thing, is they use the same words, but they have a different dictionary. They can say the Bible's inspired, And by the way, one of the sections on bibliology deals with the inspiration of the Bible, and I deal with 10 views on inspiration. 
So people can use the word inspired, but they mean something totally different from historical Christianity or from what the Bible reveals about itself. Or they can even use the word inerrant. So we've got the Cooperative Baptists here in the United States, a break off of Southern Baptists. And anyone who's in a Cooperative Baptist church ought to get out because you're being buffaloed. Um, they use the word inerrant, but they have an entirely different dictionary, just like the Mormons. They use the term son of God. I had a man recently, two weeks ago, come to meet the pastor, a Mormon. I dialogued with him further on Saturday. They use the term son of God, but they don't mean the same thing. They don't mean that he's God the son. When they, oh yeah, we believe Jesus is the son of God, like we're all sons and daughters of God, but not the way the scripture uses it, that he's God the son. And that's how the Bible uses it. They're sons of thunder. What does that mean? They're thunderous men. Caiaphas, are you the son of God? Yes, I am. He tears his robes. Why? Because he's blasphemed. He's made himself equal to God. He's saying, I'm God in human flesh. Caiaphas saw that as blasphemy. So they use the same words, different dictionary. So right off, when they are discounting the accuracy and the truth of the scripture, you know that you are listening, Gabby, to a minister of the evil one. Satan disguises himself, the Bible says, as an angel of light. And if he does so, so don't his servants, his ministers. They do the same thing. So don't assume because someone is a leader in a seminary or standing behind a pulpit on Sunday morning that they're born again. And when they cast doubt in the mind of the listeners over the authority and the reliability of Holy Scripture, you're listening to an agent of the evil one and you should run in the other direction. 843-525-1859. If you have a question on today's Bible line, Marie from Savannah says, Hello, Pastor. Uh, In spite of daily Bible readings, devotionals, radio sermons or studies, mostly on 88.7 radio, thank you, and Christian fiction and nonfiction books, I am more doubtful than assured of Jesus as my Savior. I feel that God does not draw me, as stated in John 6, 44, and I want to be with Jesus. Thank you. Well, Marie, I I appreciate your heart. So just a couple things to start. Number one, I would encourage you to either go to searchthescriptures.org. If you don't have the phone app, uh, download that, or you go to communitybiblechurch.us. But first, listen to the message, Would You Like to Know God as Your Friend? And if you'd like to come in person, I'll have one more this coming Sunday night, December the 12th. And you could come and listen to that presentation that I will do for our visitors as I do um, whenever we have a meet the pastor. Because typically those who come to a meet the pastor, typically over half are lost people. And so it helps the believer, especially if they've not led anyone to Christ in the last few years, how to learn to share their faith. But it also will help the unbeliever to understand what are the issues at heart that allow me to say I'm a truly, genuinely born-again Christian. Now, with that said, um, you want to also delve further into the issue of assurance of salvation and eternal security. Some people have asked me, is it possible for a person after they're saved to doubt their salvation? And the answer is yes, because... The Bible, when it describes our spiritual armor, it tells us to put on the helmet. And again, letting Scripture interpret Scripture, Paul's letter to the church at Thessalonica tells us the helmet is the hope of our salvation. Uh, By hope, it doesn't mean, well, I hope it's not going to rain this afternoon, but it speaks of something sure and certain that is still to take place in the future. 
So when we speak of the blessed hope, it's not doubt. Elpidis, the Greek word translated hope, speaks of a sure and certain event yet to take place in the future. And so um, what you would want to do is, after you listen to the message, go to uh, search the scriptures and download the first handout. It's called Basic Discipleship. And it's the first one that deals with assurance and eternal security. So I go through the whole process on how a Christian can be assured. So my guess is, is you have in your mind certain experiential things that you think need to be true for you to have assurance. So initially, the way God gives us assurance of salvation is based on the finished work of Christ. Uh, The fact that Christ didn't die for some of your sin or most of your sin, but all of it, it is on that basis that we can have a full assurance that heaven is our home. If salvation in any way, shape, or form was predicated on good works, and this is, of course, what the Protestant Reformation dealt with, Roman Catholics didn't deny that Christ died, was buried, and was raised. They just teach to this day that that's not enough. And so they take verses like James, faith without works is dead, and they argue, like Mormons do, that works also help save you. And if you don't do enough works in this life, well, if you're a good Catholic, you'll at least go to purgatory. You'll suffer in the flames there for a period of time to further pay for the sin Uh, that you didn't make up for by your good works, and then eventually you'll pop into heaven. All heresy. And that's not just the Council of Trent. That's a reconfirmation of Trent that was done at Vatican I, Vatican II, and then as recently as 2010 at the Cardinal of Colleges in... Cardinal of... uh, The College of Cardinals in, in Rome. So they still teach this. And so we're either saved by grace alone, through faith alone, or we're not saved at all. So initially you have assurance based on the finished work of Christ. A second way in which you have assurance is through the inner testimony of the Spirit, where the Spirit bears witness with your spirit that you've become a child of God. So this is somewhat experiential. And so as you grow in Christ, his presence becomes more and more profound. It's like a newborn baby. You hold a newborn baby and they're alive. They make themselves known. But in one sense, they're not all that aware until they begin to grow. And then they focus and they kind of see you. And for the first time, they smile. And one day you look at your little newborn and he's looking at his hands and kind of examining his fingers moving. And he's becoming aware. And as he begins to grow, he begins to crawl and talk and walk. And a whole new world opens up to him. That's what happens as we grow in Christ. And this is why the course on basic discipleship is so critical. We had a lady come to meet the pastor on Sunday night, and she was just full of questions. And after I'd answered seven or eight questions, I said, do you know that every single question you have asked me tonight is covered in our discovery class? Online, it's called Back to Basics, and about 20 of those 45 weeks are already up online where you can listen and download the handouts. And I said, every question. And I said, that question week one, that question week four, and so on. And so that's why I was suggesting to her that she go there, though she said she'd been a Christian for five years. But what I was trying to gently tell her is that she had stayed a baby Christian for five years and that she hadn't grown. And so this is why growth is important. But as you grow, there's just a something's happened in my life. There's a new closeness to God that God is not just some historical figure that when I cry out, Father, 
It's a more tender term in Aramaic, Abba. Uh, it means daddy, uh, Abba, father. There is a tenderness in your relationship with God that you sense even in prayer. There's a new depth of joy and peace. And then the third way in which God gives assurance is through the changed life. So there's a book in the New Testament that specifically addresses this, and it's called the book of First John. And as you come to the end of First John, and this verse is often, you know, applied in different ways, but it's important, I think, to look at it contextually. He says, um, uh, and the testimony is this, that God has given us eternal life. We don't earn eternal life. God gives us eternal life. And this life is in his son. He who has the son has the life. He who does not have the son of God does not have the life. So you either have Christ in your life or you don't. You're either saved or you're not. These things I've written to you. What things? The things I've recorded here in 1 John. These things I've written to you who believe in the name of the son of God in order that you may know that you have eternal life. In other words, God says you can know. Well, how can you know? Well, there were some false teachers. They had a form of pre-Gnostic theology who had entered into the churches, and John was addressing their false theology. Oh, yeah, you can be saved and live like the devil. No, the children of the devil and the children of God are clearly distinguished by a changed lifestyle. So while you're not saved by works, Ephesians 2, 8, 9, you're saved to do good works, Ephesians 10. So if these things are true of you that I've just written about, then you can know genuinely you have the real item that you're one of his and not like some of the false professors who said they were Christians and really not. So listen, it's five weeks long, five Wednesday nights, about an hour each message on assurance of salvation and eternal security, and I think that will help you. All right, 843-525-1859. Uh, we've only got five Let's go to the left. one. Um, let's see. I see one there. Uh, I would like to get a new study Bible. I was okay. wondering if you would recommend a specific version as the best. Well, right. I personally like the New American Standard Bible. I, I think it's kind of the gold standard for expository preaching. There are different kinds of Bibles that are available to people uh, there are what we would call paraphrases, the uh, popular paraphrases in the uh, 70s was like the Living Bible, the good news for modern man, and so on. Um, a, a popular paraphrase that came out uh, oh, about 15 years ago was called The Message by Eugene Peterson, an absolute disaster, terrible translation. And, and it's not really a translation, it's a commentary. And so he changed the meaning of a lot of passages. So if you paraphrase my words, you're giving kind of a commentary of what you think I said. Well, you want to go primarily, what did I actually say? Well, you'd have to have my actual words. Well, we don't really have literal translations today just because uh, the word order even in, say, Greek is very different from, say, the word order in, in in English, like we typically go subject, verb, object. You could have the uh, verb is the first word in the sentence in Greek. Um, so word order is often changed, especially when you want to emphasize and underscore a truth. So every translation has to do a little bit of interpreting. And sometimes, like when you read a verse of Scripture, um, there is something in, say, the Greek that's implied um, and so in the English text, because it's implied, 
and the New American Standard does this by adding italics. And so italics, since about the 16th century in an English Bible, was not done for emphasis like we might do today to put something in italics or maybe to distinguish a book from an article or whatever. The reason was to show these very words are not found in the original, but they are implied. And so I'll give you an example. Like in Ephesians, the fifth chapter, he is speaking about... um, being subject to one another in the fear of the Lord, uh, Ephesians 5.21. And then it says, wives, be subject to your husbands as to the Lord. And so the word be subject is found in italics, not in the original. And so some feminists would say, well, you see, some translators added that. No, it's implied in the Greek. It's a shared verb. And just if you didn't believe me, you could read the book of Colossians, where he specifically unequivocally says in Colossians 3.18, wives, be subject, um, the verbs there, to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. So what you want as best as possible is a literal translation. So on one end of the spectrum, you might have a paraphrase like the Living Bible. On the other end, you might have a very literal wooden translation like an interlinear, which is a challenge to read. Um, and uh, But on the upper end of a literal translation would be like the King James or the New American Standard. Further down, moving towards a paraphrase, but not paraphristic, would be something like the NIV, <clears throat> New International Version 84. They came out with a new translation in 2010 on the Internet, 2011 in, on paper. But uh, sadly, they... Um, they changed a lot of things to make it more gender acceptable. The, 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 the NIV became an extremely um, popular translation because the guy who was the head of Zondervan was a marketing genius, and so he marketed not as the NIV but under different um, titles, like this is the businessman's Bible or the athletic Bible or the woman's study Bible. And Oh, I want the woman's study Bible. They didn't even know what translation they were reading. And the NIV 84 was decent, but again, it, it paraphrased and did a lot more interpretation than a more literal translation. So you lost some of it. And since during that period of time, most people began to move from expository preaching, largely due to the influence of guys like Bill Hybels and Rick Warren, They just read scriptures. They didn't really teach it verse by verse by verse. But you will find that most people who are expository preachers, verse by verse, word by word, they will use the NASB. So that's where I would start with the New American Standard Bible. We're out of time, but so glad that you could listen to us today here on the Bible Line. It's posted in just a few hours. If you have friends that you would like to hear the questions answered, and you can send them the link. God bless you as you walk with Jesus Christ. 